Hey, Chef Dean here. Gotta tell you about Rosa Grande pepperoni for your pizzas. These little beauties feature a cool cup and char look and a premium taste. They'll bring your customers back like they were boomerangs. Check them out at HormelCupAndChar.com. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Kyle Brown to Table Talk. Kyle is co-founder of Unified Data Labs and an established entrepreneur with more than 10 years of experience in business and technology in the food and beverage industry. His knowledge in tech startup has led him to the role of product development with Unified Data and other business opportunities to further develop innovation in food technology and information technology. Good morning, Kyle, and welcome to Table Talk. Good morning, Rosanna. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm glad that you've had uh, some time in your schedule to be here with us today. Um, Now, obviously, Unified Data um, has been around for a while, but there may be a few people out there uh, in our listener pool who don't know very much about it. So I thought we could start off with uh, telling us a little bit about the company and, uh, and what the mandate is. So if we could start there, that'd be great. For sure, yes. So we own uh, multiple companies. Uh, One of the most well-known companies we own is Serve.com, S-I-R-V-E-D.com. And it's a menu discovery platform, um, consumer-facing, that collects and and, uh, hosts uh, one million menus across North America. So Unified Data is another company we recently opened. It's been around for about two years now. Um, And we provide data and insights to the F&B industry. Um, all of our information in our databases, they're updated every 30 days. So that makes us pretty unique and proprietary uh, within this space here to have a a quick refresh rate. Um, And as I mentioned, we own multiple consumer platforms um, and serve.com and five other ones that are kind of lesser known. Um, But our mandate and our mission is to be the data source and the pulse of the industry. We want to be uh, an information resource, and we want to help provide information that was missing within the industry, such as different attributes about restaurants, um, single reports, custom reports, you know, with all the consumer behavior within our ecosystem, all the search that we see, and just the sheer number of menus that we actually host within our databases. We have a, a deep look into pricing and uh, pricing changeovers when new menus are updated. Um, we have a couple different tools here. We have Menu Explorer, which allows you to explore and access info on 500,000 menus across North America. So not just Canada, not just USA. Um, learning about different pricing on the menus itself, um, average price of particular menu items, locations that are you know trending with certain foods that are listed on the menu. We have single ad hoc reports. We offer open and close reports. Um, a restaurant explorer tool, which is quite cool with our 1.1 million restaurants we track in North America, uh, on a map view, you can actually hyper-focus geographically on any single one of the restaurants. You know, if you're looking at expanding into new territories and we provide this all inside of a, a portal, um, inside of Unified data that you can access, or we can curate custom reports. 
the the breadth of what you offer sounds just so amazing uh, and i and i've seen your portal and how it works so there's a lot of valuable insights and, and great information on that um and interestingly you said you started the company 2 years ago uh so right in the thick of the pandemic i take it that's um, right yeah not always a promising time to start something new. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to say it's very gutsy uh, on your end, but um, was it just at the outset of the pandemic or was it towards the latter part of the year? So really kind of right in the middle of it, um, again, with serve.com, um, we had to remain pretty proactive on how we positioned ourselves. We had a, a user base that was searching for menu information, but with a mandate that everyone must quarantine at home. And all restaurants were closed indefinitely until further notice. You know, we were quite concerned. Um, but we had a sheer amount of information and data. And we thought we should take a deeper look into how things are performing. What are the open and closed rates of these restaurants? And how are these announcements affecting the actual state of the industry? So that's what kind of provoked us to um, really take the initiative to start utilizing and analyzing our, our data within our own data sets and, and created a whole company around that to provide this information back to the industry. Well, well it sounds great. And, and I know these days, I think everybody, um, you know, everybody's used to getting so much information. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, an outgrowth of the internet, I suppose, but there's so much information and analysis on what's going on. And obviously through the last two years, the industry has changed a great deal um, and food service operations are probably more, um, you know, have been forced to become a little bit more tech savvy through the last two years. What kind of information do you um, would be interested in, in terms of your database? So the menu items you talked about, um, but what else could they gather from there that would give them insights on how to run their business? Um, so it's it's kind of an infinite question. <laughs> um, so it's what do they want to track? What do they want to learn about to help create educated decisions? So we sometimes have conversations because data for um, this industry, it, it's relatively new. It's been around and there are some large predominant players within this space within North America um, with data and insights. So we're new to the table on this. Um, but the amount of data in restaurants that we track is it's a larger number than I guess some other um, members of our competition. Mm -hmm. But people are looking at mostly pricing, uh, pricing, how items are priced, creating trends. You know, sometimes large corporations can create a trend just because they'd like to use, you know, and I'm just using this as a, a very general reference. They'd like to include avocado because it's seemingly a health benefit on trend item they create this trend across all of North America by adding that to their menu. And then a lot of fence sitters will actually, you know, see what they're doing there, assume that that's a, a correct trend that the consumers want that the marketing tells consumers, this is what you want, but is it really a trend? So people are looking at what items are actually getting added to menus and not just large chains, not just um, influencers within the industry, not just the fence sitters, but the small mom and pop shops as well. Um, we can kind of track those things. Expanding into new territories is, is something very big right now. And with construction costs and real estate and vacancy of old restaurant space, um, a lot of times they are outfitted in a correct way that someone could purchase that real estate space and retrofit it to do um, you know, kind of a mass unit expansion. So we have a lot of groups 
using and, and brands and chains using our open and close reports to track anything that's actually closed to, uh, to take advantage of new opportunity to expand. Um, our consumer connect side of things allows us to kind of actually conduct uh, live research uh, based on any, any studies they'd like completed. Then we blend that data into kind of our own proprietary information that we can report back to make uh, decisions. So how many uh, food service operations would be part of your database? I know you mentioned, I think, 1.1 in all of North America, if I'm not mistaken, but um, how many in Canada specifically would be part of this? Yes, you're correct on 1.1 million across uh, USA and Canada. And in Canada alone, we track nearly 130,000 locations. And one thing that is unique we have a census of restaurants rather than a sample. What's the difference between? Well, a sample would just be a small number. A census would be a much larger number of restaurants that we're using to collect this information from. Well, 130,000, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing in Canada. So that's great. It really gives you a great understanding of what's happening, um, both from trends and, and restaurant closures, as, as I know you mentioned. Two years after, like when we're looking at society now returning to, you know, to fewer restrictions and people going out more, um, where do you think we stand today? I mean, have you seen a dramatic shift in the last six months uh, of restaurants uh, either closing or reopening and and that, uh, you know, businesses returning to some better volume? Um, Can you see that through your analysis? We can, yes. So, Business is returning to, um, I guess, a new normal, we should call it. Um, and, and during the height of the lockdowns, we saw a real shift in, in patterns. So a lot of the closures were in big cities. Um, they were in places that were no longer as densely populated. I know Toronto took a very, very big hit in their downtown core. Um, Vancouver as well. Prince Edward Island took uh, probably one of the biggest hits because, again, they rely purely on tourism um, for a, a province that has a population of 160,000, you know, uh, approximately, they have 1.9 million tourists that would visit them annually. And during the height of the pandemic, Prince Edward Island was under very strict lockdowns. That's right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, things are returning to normal. What we're seeing is a stabilization in permanently closed. We're seeing more new openings, um, rapid unit expansion for, brands that are positioned to do so, um, but they're doing it very differently. You know, by adding just a drive-through in downtown centers, you know, people don't want to go in there and spend the time inside of restaurants as much as they used to, as, as shocking as that may seem for quick service restaurants in these urban areas like downtown Toronto and uh, Vancouver in particular. Um, they were able to keep a lot of restaurants open and locations open by adding drive-through and curbside and, and more convenience factors. So through the pandemic, I mean, we heard a lot of stories about restaurant closings, as we mentioned, Um, but there's also on the flip side of that, there's also been a lot of restaurants that have opened through the last two years, which is a little bit more surprising because you don't think that anybody would actually open a restaurant during this time. Um, Can you shed some insight into what those numbers look in terms of new openings as opposed to just the closures? That's right. So um, <clears throat> I've mentioned the closure there with uh, Subway and Starbucks and Starbucks closing 229 locations across Canada over the pandemic. Subway lost 68 locations. Um, 
but they had many fault lines, which the pandemic kind of exacerbated. And we, we've seen even sharper declines in the USA. Uh, Tim Hortons actually had the most number of closures in total. Uh, with regard to openings, we've actually seen the most new location openings from Tim Hortons. There was 15 in Canada. And three pizza chains, Pizza Pizza opened 14 new locations across Canada. Pizza Hut opened 13 new locations. And Red Swan Pizza opened 11 new locations. So it's, it, it is kind of a, a positive light that at least there are some openings coming on stream these days after um, the turbulent two years. We yeah, it is, a, it is a positive light and, and we're seeing more and more, uh, even newer brands coming in that are much smaller chains um, coming into the picture. When you say newer brands, are those coming in from the US or are they coming in through uh, Canada? You know, some in Canada and some through the U.S., but some of them are just local brands that are expanding into, uh, you know, small chains. I see. Okay. And where, when you look at the new openings and, and what's projected, I guess, coming forward, where do you see some of the best location opportunities for those wanting to open a restaurant? I, I know that you mentioned, obviously, Toronto was very hard hit through the pandemic and Vancouver, Montreal, uh, and the big cities really got the brunt of, of, of the damage through the pandemic. But on the flip side of that, where do you think um, today are some of the best opportunities for operators to look at opening restaurants? You know, looking where people live, um, there's been a shift. And, and, you know, Toronto still has a very dense downtown population. But some underserviced parts of the community, maybe uh, GTA might not be the best example, but where I live locally here in Windsor, um, you know, things are in towns, <clears throat> things are right in the city center where we go access food. And there's a lot of uh, subdivisions built around us where you'd actually have to commute, you know, up to 10 minutes even, which doesn't sound like very far, but we're seeing a lot of new locations, um, brands, chains opening up in these more suburb areas uh, right in subdivisions because that's the work shift, uh, work from home shift is kind of dictated that people, they still want to go out, they still want to eat, they still want convenience, but they want less of a drive and they want, they want pure convenience. Um, so having that locally closer to where people live, um, that's where we're seeing a lot of new locations opening up. That makes a lot of sense. So you're seeing a shift from the urban centers to more suburban. Um, That's correct. As a result of working from home and people having more flexibility in their in their work schedules. Um, so do you think that's a trend that will be just in the near term as we get out of this pandemic era? Or do you think that um, this is kind of one of those shifts that's going to be around for a while? You know, that, that's that's a tough prediction to make. I think it's too early to really make a strong statement about that. But uh, from my opinion, I think that's something we're going to continue to see. I think that um, it's 2022, more than ever, we, we crave convenience. Um, and we do still like exiting our home, you know, uh, takeout, uh, delivery, third-party delivery, all great options. But I think it, there's something about exiting your house to have that break or that relief or that ritual. So you're going to see these pop up more closer to... Um, you know, suburb areas and, and, and where the population is living as aside from just city centers. Okay, fair enough. So Kyle, I know you mentioned earlier that you also um, target the US market and, and as part of your um, information and research. When you look at the US market, 
what similarities and differences uh, are you seeing that are evident between Canada and the U.S.? I know that uh, we're often accused of lagging, you know, a few years behind the trends in the states. Um, and the U.S. market dealt with the pandemic a lot differently than what we did in Canada. Um, what, what trends do you see being different south of the border than here? Um, kind of a tough question. So just a little bit of a scope. Uh, when you look in the U.S. market and the similarities um, between you know, what happened in Canada and what happened in the U.S., yes, both countries handled it very differently. But then you have some provinces that were a little more relaxed uh, to some degree than perhaps Ontario was or certainly Prince Edward Island was. Um, then you see Chicago with very, very strict um, pandemic rules and the response to the pandemic. Then you see states like Texas and Florida. They had mm -hmm. significantly fewer closures. So it, it's difficult to, to say that, but I know that uh, some of the similarities, um, if we had to draw comparisons between the hardest hit Canada and hardest hit USA, we're seeing more quick service restaurants. You're seeing less fine dining. Um, and, that, and the reason for that is just the, the expensive real estate in, in some of these cities, the fine dining, they've been closed for so long that it, it's difficult to take that kind of loss and nor does that food travel very well. Um, mm -hmm. QSR still remains the biggest segment and the fastest growing segment. Um, and as I mentioned previously, you're seeing, uh, I mentioned three separate pizza chains that opened up, you know, new locations, um, even during all of this. Um, so you're seeing those similarities. Um, some of the different trends that are kind of in Canada and USA, we're seeing environmental, like focusing on local foods, uh, are driving menu choices. Um, people are looking for healthy foods, uh, in, in Canada and USA, and people are looking for just experiences. If they're going to dine into a place, they want something that they're not easily able to replicate at home and something that's unique. So I think that's something in, in Canada and USA that's we're definitely noticing um, when we're looking at menu options and just kind of the vast uh, information. When you mentioned some of the chains that had grown the most um, through this pandemic, you also you mentioned some of the pizza chains, whether it's Pizza Pizza or some other ones. Um, pizza had great success through the pandemic, and I suppose that's reflected in, in what you're saying there. Um, it's it's a product that travels well. Do you see do you see that pattern continuing over the next while? Um, I think pizza and hamburgers and chicken those were all very popular during the pandemic. So it, it's not surprising that you see some of that growth happening in those areas. Yeah. So some of the other uh, I guess cuisine types that we're seeing, um, you know, pizza, Mexican, Mediterranean, shawarma those kinds of restaurants that have those offerings, they've had the most new openings and new locations. And since January, 2022 to now, uh, in North America, we've seen 6,514 newly opened restaurants and that's across North America. In Canada alone, we've seen 737 new restaurants that have opened since January, 2022. That's amazing. And in what areas in Canada do you see that? Mostly uh, central Canada, west? How do you see the breakdown? Uh, central, uh, Ontario, there's a, you know, being the large population, we're seeing a lot in Ontario um, and out west. 
Interesting. So even through the hardship of the last two years, there's still a lot of positivity and light going on in terms of uh, seeing this growth in restaurants. That's amazing. Absolutely. So when we look at um, some of the other trends that have happened through the pandemic, uh, we saw real growth in alcoholic beverages. And, um, you know, that was actually one of the areas that did grow a lot and that the sales at the, you know, the LCBO in Ontario, those were very high during the pandemic. Um, what interesting changes are you seeing in that whole area of alcoholic beverages? Are, are you monitoring that area at all? We are, yes. We monitor anything that's listed as a beverage, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, on a menu. We can actually search in our database. And some of the results we're seeing, um, one of the things that's very popular, and we're seeing it at the LCBO just in general, is ready-to-drink beverages. Mm-hmm. Um, seltzers, spritzers, premix. Um, that's that's increasingly popular, and it's increasingly popular on a restaurant menu, which is I find interesting because when I go to a bar or a restaurant to enjoy, I'm not really usually looking for something that you just crack open and and drink, but actually those are um, those are what's selling, and it's good for the restaurant because they have a fixed cost and very little effort to put that drink together. Uh, another trend we're seeing is actually non-alcoholic beverages perhaps because for the last two years, we've potentially consumed more than ever. Um, as you mentioned, the LCBO was a very busy uh, outlet during the pandemic with not a lot of things to do. Um, non-alcoholic beverages are are very popular. And actually at the Restaurants Canada show, we were an uh, exhibitor at that show recently in May. I was talking to a, a spirits company and they came out with a couple of different non-alcoholic spirits. And I asked what that is. And it's basically blended and i don't uh i don't want to incorrectly say this but how i interpreted it was it's a pre-infused flavored product as if they would create a gin but without the alcohol base so you can enjoy a similar flavor um with the luxury cocktail um with no alcohol so that's yeah that's a new thing Do, do you think that's driven by a younger demographic i know when you look at sales um millennials and younger demographics are looking for more healthy based beverages with fewer you know with less alcohol in there is that a reflection of that do you think i think it's many things i think it's um it could be older generations as well that aren't drinking as much um younger generations might be looking for the health benefit as i mentioned previously Um, People coming out of the pandemic are looking at health significantly more than they ever have. Um, I think previously we had the illusion of being healthy by um, so-called adding adding avocado or a healthy ingredient that we would perceive onto, you know, a menu item. But now people are actually looking for a health benefit. Um, I I think I could attribute it to just a trend right now. Okay, interesting. Um, you mentioned earlier in our discussion just the trend on local uh, local products, and um, I, I recently I remember seeing an article that showed that in light of global supply chain issues, we're going to see continued growth in local products moving forward. How do you see this trend shaping up, um, and, and what are some of the challenges that we can expect on this front? Uh, because obviously, from a local production, we we can't supply everything locally. So how do you see that playing out? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are specialty ingredients I think we're always going to have to rely on, but not always available. 
Um, so what you're going to see is sourcing local products, but can all the local suppliers keep up with that demand as everyone else kind of, you know, jumps on to that kind of trend and, and starts utilizing local things. We've seen in the past, um, you know, different areas and different times, farm to table, hyper-local um, organics. And I think that's coming back and it's getting reiterated, but I think that areas that maybe weren't as agricultural forward or didn't maybe have access to fresh produce, you're seeing more of it in those areas. One other thing that I find interesting is restaurants are acting as a, a small pantry or, or grocery mm -hmm. items are available, um, which I find really cool, which provides these local vendors, you know, not even just food products, but other types of products or, or bitters or spirits or local seltzers, local breweries, um, they become distribution points for these vendors. Hey guys, it's Chef D. I'm here to tell you about Primoral Bacon Flavored Crumbles. These little bundles of wonder add real bacon flavor anywhere on the menu without crazy high bacon prices. Get a sample at BaconCrumbles.com and see for yourself. So you're talking about the trend to uh, a lot of restaurants moving to a marketplace kind of uh, environment during the pandemic. That's right. Do you yeah, think, they were offering. Yeah, they, they do you think offering. that trend will will continue? Um, because I know in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of restaurants turned to that marketplace, as, as you mentioned. But is that something that will stay? I think it won't stay forever the same way that it was during the pandemic. I think that um, I think I, I would put it this way. If you went to your favorite restaurant, they had something very unique and very specific or had access to a local provider that we couldn't have direct access to, that's what makes that desirable. That's why people would go in there. But um, a lot of cases as well, people were going into restaurants to buy pantry items, um, as we would call it, or grocery items to support the restaurant as well. They wanted to that's make right. sure that, that they were supporting that restaurant. But I think some items stuck, you know, there's restaurants that and make their own pasta that could be ready to go to bring home. They have a proprietary barbecue sauce. They have a proprietary tomato sauce. Um, I think those items will become staples. Um, and I think that we'll see that permanently. Yeah, no, that makes sense. As you said, if you're getting exposed to different products or new products that you hadn't seen or you wanted to support the, the restaurant. I know one of the restaurants that was doing that in Toronto in the early days has now moved that pantry area to a separate location outside the restaurant so that it's not still part of the restaurant. So there's probably going to be a, a few changes on that front as we move forward. Um, the pantry marketplace uh, approach really speaks to innovation in the industry. And I think through the last two years of the pandemic, restaurant owners had to become a little bit more creative and innovative in their approach. Uh, in order to get different revenue streams into their operations. Um, as the industry works to redefine itself now as we move out, hopefully, into a post-pandemic world, what do you think restaurants will have to do to further innovate? Um, many things. <laughs> you know, I think grocery items is just a small, small portion of that because again they're not a grocery store they are a restaurant and that's what they're they're looking to do but maybe more ready to go items um, people like i said are seeking convenience so if you're a finer fine dining restaurant you might not get that business lunch crowd as frequently but maybe 
people would come into the city or pass by for um, something a little bit simpler that's more gourmet, that's ready to go. So ready to go options is becoming very popular. I think that smaller menus is important. I think that restaurants need to focus on their menu options and make sure they're, they're sourcing things that are unique to them, that are proprietary to them, um, and to remain competitive on what they're offering. Um, I think that restaurants need to definitely stay ahead of the tech curve. They need to utilize the technology, um, make decisions using data, which is what we, we look at doing with restaurants and working to, to help them ingest this information and make smart decisions with it. Um, I, one thing that was actually very interesting was selling alcohol um, for consumers to take home. That was a big change, particularly in Ontario mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And it makes sense because some wines and, you know, if people are into this and you're a fine dining restaurant, perhaps wine clubs could become something more popular because a lot of these restaurants base this off volume. Um, some of these wines are very special and hard to get. Sometimes they import it um, by themselves and you can't access it anywhere else. So I could see innovation in those senses, um, clubs within the restaurant. They have, to, they have to remain unique and have unique offerings. That makes total sense. And I think that's an area of possible growth for for operators moving forward. Um, You mentioned the tech curve. And I know with your company being so immersed on the digital side and and, and technology becoming more important and accelerated through the pandemic, where do you think the industry? I know a lot of companies had to really move quicker on the technology front. Is there still a long way to go in terms of what restaurants can do? digitally to, to improve their business and, and to increase their sales? I think a restaurant has to, you know, I, I think that the pandemic allowed restaurants to adopt technology. I, I think if we had any good out of this, it allowed the restaurant industry to redefine itself, how it should operate. Um, it, it needs to be tech savvy. They need to be online. They need to be updating information. They need to be utilizing all the platforms available to communicate to all audiences that they're open. These are the menu offerings, you know, and there's a lot of great tools out there. And I I won't mention the particular companies that offer them, but there's different companies that help create menus and push them out um, to different platforms. There's many, several third-party delivery options now. Um, There's white label delivery platforms that they can use on their website with different pricing models. I'd say it depends on your restaurant. If you're a fine dining restaurant or, um, you know, a higher end restaurant that's offering, let's say steak or lobster or fresh pastas, those don't travel that well. So how are you going to use technology to your advantage? It's probably not so much through the delivery aspect of it, but more through the pricing competition and marketing aspect of it. If you're in the QSR segment, I think if you don't have online delivery, um, it sometimes just won't be an option for consumers. Um, One other thing that's very interesting, I was listening to a a podcast recently, and they talked about dynamic pricing and surge pricing. So one thing that we will see, and this goes back to how we evaluate pricing within our database, um, you'll see different pricing for different ways you're going to consume for the exact same menu item. That's right. So what what I mean by that is, if you order from a third-party delivery app and it's a busy hour, you'll have surge pricing and you'll pay significantly more to get that item faster to you, or you can wait longer. Curbside might have its own pricing strategy 
And then drive-through will have its own pricing strategy. And then there's dine-in. You're using the real estate to actually physically sit there um, to consume. Yeah, no, that's right. And I actually did a podcast uh, episode on that last year with Fraser Nagy, who was talking about the dynamic pricing. And that that is something that in the States has been used a little bit more and um, and possibly, you know, down the road be used here in Canada as well. So that's interesting how you could apply that same premise to to whether it's being delivered or eaten in, on, on premise. Um. You mentioned earlier some of the food trends that you know you're you're seeing from a, a company point of view when you're looking at analysis of these restaurants, and you mentioned you know being able to tap into something like avocado, which is popular. What are some of the other impactful menu trends of the day that you're seeing through these uh, through this restaurant information that you're analyzing? Sure. So what we've actually seen um, a lot of plant based menu offerings are becoming available. Um, people are defining themselves as flexitarians, which is a new term that's been identified. Um, and I myself would be a flexitarian where I predominantly would choose meat options, but sometimes the vegan or vegetarian option sounds interesting, um, has amazing flavor and closely simulated to a a meat type option. So you're seeing a lot of plant-based alternatives, um, on many menus. We're actually seeing plant-based seafood, believe it or not. Um, scallops are being mimicked by using the trunks of oyster mushrooms. Um, we're seeing that on menus and the health conscious side of things too. People, uh, have the belief that the, the plant-based diet is, is, is healthier. Um, you know, QSR menus are becoming more creative and again, they're the largest segment in the F and B industry. And we're seeing, even with, you know, chicken wing type places, we're seeing cauliflower being used as a, a substitute, which, you know, it's, it's something very separate. Uh, it's, it's a different product, but very tasty. It has the flavors, it has the breading, it has all of the same features and attributes. And it's a, it's a good product. We're seeing ethnic cuisines and flavors. They're on the rise using ethnic ingredients with something that's very simple to create sort of a fusion flavor. Um, And I would say one of the things we're seeing is things that are not easily replicated at home. People want something different. For sure. Well, that gives us a a great overview. Thank you. As we, um, as we move out of this pandemic and we're not totally out of it yet. um, I know it's still happening in in various parts of the country and the world, but as we move forward, what are some of the biggest challenges for the restaurant industry as it gets to that next level of recovery, what do you see? Well, you know, supply and logistics is front and forward right now. Um, Just people can't get anything. I was in a restaurant in downtown Chicago for the National Restaurants Association. And uh, this restaurant in particular is known for bone-in veal chop parmesan. They were sold out two days in a row because they simply could not get it. So staffing, uh, major staffing issue. Restaurants can't even operate at full capacity because they just don't have the staff to provide the service that they'd like to offer, um, you know, to, to the consumers. Those are the two major things that we're facing right now. So, you know, I hate to say it, but I see a lot of robotic technology (laughs) at both of the trade shows we were just at in May at the NRA show and RC show. Which, um, you know, if you have an operator in a, a line kitchen and you have robotic arms, 
you know, dump, dumping French fries into fryers and pulling them out and tossing them, uh, there's still a demand and, and need for people to be on site there. There's still a need for people, but the repetitive work to turn out, you know, simple to make food. I think that we might see robotic arms and different pieces of technology kind of replacing um, people for that particular task. That's one way we can overcome this. Um, pricing strategy is really tough too. It's tough to stay competitive for restaurants, especially when ingredients are priced so high and hard to get. It's almost impossible to really turn over uh, a profit. And that's why you're seeing, you know, the cost of chicken wings, you're seeing people using cauliflower as, you know, an, an on-trend um, unique menu offering, but they also have a significantly higher margin on that as well. So uh, it's a struggle sometimes. I see restaurants trying to provide quality, but quality versus cost. Um, I think one message to restaurants is that quality is always justified to the consumer. And I think that it's a, a point in time where consumers are now getting used to paying higher prices for you know, mostly everything, but particularly at restaurants, there's a strong understanding of what goes into producing food and providing food to consumers. Um, and it, it's, I think we've kind of reset pricing forever. I don't think we're going to go backwards. Um, even if we can gain more room on the margins, I think that the pricing is kind of here to stay. I was going to mention that because I know in the past consumers uh, would always, you know, there was a lot of sticker shock when prices went up on menus, but I, I get the sense that over the last year with people eating out, you know, in restaurants less and less, there seems to be less resistance to price increases in restaurants. But um, is that something that, you know, is tempered by the fact that sometimes the service may not be as it should be because of staffing shortages? Do you, do you think that pricing um, resistance can be affected by the level of service and that the, the service may it may not be what it used to be. I absolutely, I believe that. Yeah, I think that, as I mentioned previously, quality must prevail. Um, if the service lacks, it's we. You know, most of us know it's not really the restaurant's fault. Um, they're having a staffing issue. They have not enough people to help service that many people they'd like to to service. Um, but if the food quality is good, if it's there, the price is justified. Is what we're finding. Um, and just based on some simple consumer studies and other articles I've even read, um, people want quality. They don't mind spending the money as long as they get satisfaction out of it. Uh, service, going to a restaurant service is definitely, you know, 50% of the satisfaction that we get out of going to a restaurant, you know, talking to the, the serving staff, um, the chef coming out, the, the whole thing about going to restaurants, the entertainment value of it. But of course, the other 50%, the food has to be good. There has to be quality. For sure. So Kyle, um, as a way to wrap up our, our discussion today, um, over the last two years, as we've dealt with this turbulent time, I think all of us have come away with various lessons that we've learned, uh, be it on the personal side of our lives or on the professional side. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned through the pandemic? as it relates to your business, but also what has it taught you about yourself? Sure. <clears throat> I think um, everybody should have learned, uh, become recession-proof. Um, stay ahead of your offerings, you know, restaurants in particular, myself, my company, stay ahead of what you're able to do and learn more, learn the next steps, learn the next trend. 
and, and become engulfed in it so that, you know, you're not left behind when you need to actually utilize that uh, technology in a restaurant. Some people did not get ahead of this and now it's a brand new concept. Some people are already accelerating with it because they've been using it for so long. I know with serve.com, we were worried because, you know, all restaurants were closed. Our whole thing is menu search. Um, we wanted people searching in our ecosystem, but what happened was restaurants, they were not using technology. We were the ones helping resource this information. We had more users than ever. We had 42 million users post pandemic after everything cleared using serve.com, but we became recession proof. We're uh, an information source. Um, and again, diversifying your offerings, you know, for, for ourselves, um, for our, our company, diversify what you're able to do for someone with skill sets for, uh, as a personal thing, um, learn multiple skill sets because you, you just never know what industries might be changed or eliminated. You need to have just multifaceted skills. And, uh, and in terms of offerings, you know, our, our company, we're offering different things. We've expanded into an insights and analytics, um, for the industry kind of, uh, utilizing all the information that we have to provide good and value to help make decisions, to keep this industry moving forward. And I think the biggest thing is just be proactive and don't be afraid to take risks because, um, you know, the risks of doing nothing are, I think are greater than actually taking a risk to do, do something different. Those are some great lessons. Um, thank you for sharing that. Any, any lessons personally from your end in terms of personally, um, what it's taught you about yourself? I think what it's taught me about myself is make sure you take time to enjoy what you have um, and take the time to enjoy those experiences. You know, we got into this industry in the restaurant segments and, and food discovery and data analytics. We love food. We love entertainment. We love going out and we love sharing experiences with other people. So I think that has helped me cherish those experiences that I'm able to have uh, much further. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's a lot of great insight in there. Well, our time has uh, has flown by and I just wanted to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know there's a lot going on in your company and uh, and the rest of the world as we get out of this pandemic. So I do appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully look forward to seeing you in person real soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rosanna. I, I enjoy being on here with you and having that conversation. Thank you. Have a great day. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.